Germania. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Germania by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. A liquor for drinking is made out of barley or other grain and fermented into a certain resemblance to wine. The dwellers on the river bank also buy wine. Their food is of a simple kind, consisting of wild fruit, fresh game, and curdled milk. They satisfy their hunger without elaborate preparation and without delicacies. In quenching their thirst, they are not equally moderate. If you indulge their love of drinking by supplying them with as much as they desire, they will be overcome by their own vices as easily as by the arms of an enemy. One and the same kind of spectacle is always exhibited at every gathering. Naked youths who practice the sport bound in the dance amid swords and lances that threaten their lives. Experience gives them skill, and skill again gives grace. Profit or pay are out of the question. However reckless their pastime, its reward is the pleasure of the spectators. Strangely enough, they make games of hazard a serious occupation, even when sober, and so venturesome are they about gaining or losing that, when every other resource has failed, on the last and final throw they stake the freedom of their own persons. The loser goes into voluntary slavery. Though the younger and stronger, he suffers himself to be bound and sold. Such is their stubborn persistency in a bad practice. They themselves call it honour. Slaves of this kind the owners part with in the way of commerce, and also to relieve themselves from the scandal of such a victory. The other slaves are not employed after our manner with distinct domestic duties assigned to them, but each one has the management of a house and home of his own. The master requires from the slave a certain quantity of grain, of cattle, and of clothing, as he would from a tenant, and this is the limit of subjection. All other household functions are discharged by the wife and children. To strike a slave, or to punish him with bonds or with hard labour, is a rare occurrence. They often kill them, not in enforcing strict discipline, but on the impulse of passion, as they would an enemy, only it is done with impunity. The freedmen do not rank much above slaves, and are seldom of any weight in the family, never in the state, with the exception of those tribes which are ruled by kings. There, indeed, they rise above the freed-born and the noble. Elsewhere, the inferiority of the freedman marks the freedom of the state. Of lending money on interest and increasing it by compound interest, they know nothing, a more effectual safeguard than if it were prohibited. Land proportioned to the number of inhabitants is occupied by the whole community in turn, and afterwards divided among them according to rank. A wide expanse of plains makes the partition easy. They till fresh fields every year, and they have still more land than enough. With the richness and extent of their soil, they do not laboriously exert themselves in planting orchards, enclosing meadows, and watering gardens. Corn is the only produce required from the earth. Hence, even the year itself is not divided by them into as many seasons as with us. Winter, spring, and summer have both a meaning and a name. The name and blessings of autumn are alike unknown. In their funerals there is no pomp. They simply observe the custom of burning the bodies of illustrious men with certain kinds of wood. They do not heap garments or spices on the funeral pile. The arms of the dead man, and in some cases his horse, are consigned to the fire. A turf mound forms the tomb. 
monuments with their lofty elaborate splendour they reject as oppressive to the dead. Tears and lamentations they soon dismiss, grief and sorrow but slowly. It is thought becoming for women to bewail, for men to remember the dead. Such on the whole is the account which I have received of the origin and manners of the entire German people. I will now touch on the institutions and religious rites of the separate tribes, pointing out how far they differ, and also what nations have migrated from Germany into Gaul. That highest authority, the great Julius, informs us that Gaul was once more powerful than Germany. Consequently, we may believe that Gauls even crossed over into Germany. For what a trifling obstacle would a river be to the various tribes as they grew in strength and wished to possess in exchange settlements which were still open to all and not partitioned among powerful monarchies. Accordingly, the country between the Hercynian forest and the rivers Rhine and Manus, and that which lies beyond, was occupied respectively by the Helvetii and Boii, both tribes of Gaul. The name Boiamum still survives, marking the old tradition of the place, though the population has been changed. Whether, however, the Araviski migrated into Pannonia from the Ossi, a German race, or whether the Ossi came from the Araviski into Germany, as both nations still retain the same language, institutions, and customs, is a doubtful matter, for as they were once equally poor and equally free, either bank had the same attractions, the same drawbacks. The Treveri and Nervi are even eager in their claims of a German origin, thinking that the glory of this descent distinguishes them from the uniform level of Gallic effeminacy. The Rhine bank itself is occupied by tribes unquestionably German, the Vangiones, the Tribozzi, and the Nemetes, nor do even the Ubii, though they have earned the distinction of being a Roman colony and prefer to be called Agrippinensis, from the name of their founder, blush to own their origin. Having crossed the sea in former days and given proof of their allegiance, they were settled on the Rhine-bank itself as those who might guard it but need not be watched. Foremost among all these nations in valour, the Batavi occupy an island within the Rhine and but a small portion of the bank. Formerly a tribe of the Chiati, they were forced by internal dissension to migrate to their present settlements and there become a part of the Roman Empire. They yet retain the honourable badge of an ancient alliance, for they are not insulted by tribute, nor ground down by the tax-gatherer. Free from the usual burdens and contributions, and set apart for fighting purposes, like a magazine of arms, we reserve them for our wars. The subjection of the Matiazzi is of the same character for the greatness of the Roman people has spread reverence for our empire beyond the Rhine and the old boundaries. Thus this nation, whose settlements and territories are on their own side of the river, are yet in sentiment and purpose one with us. In all other respects they resemble the Batavi, except that they still gain from the soil and climate of their native land a keener vigour. I should not reckon among the German tribes the cultivators of the tithe lands, although they are settled on the further side of the Rhine and Danube. Reckless adventurers from Gaul, emboldened by want, occupy this land of questionable ownership. After a while, our frontier having been advanced and our military positions pushed forward, it was regarded as a remote nook of our empire and a part of a Roman province. Beyond them are the Chatti, 
whose settlements begin at the Hercynian forest, where the country is not so open and marshy as in the other cantons into which Germany stretches. They are found where there are hills, and with them grow less frequent, for the Hercynian forest keeps close till it has seen the last of its native chatty. Hardy frames, close-knit limbs, fierce countenances, and a peculiarly vigorous courage mark the tribe. For Germans they have much intelligence and sagacity. They promote their picked men to power and obey those whom they promote. They keep their ranks, not their opportunities, check their impulses, portion out the day, entrench themselves by night, regard fortune as a doubtful, valour as an unfailing resource. And what is most unusual, and only given to systematic discipline, they rely more on the general than on the army. Their whole strength is in their infantry, which, in addition to its arms, is laden with iron tools and provisions. Other tribes you see going to battle, the chatty to a campaign. Seldom do they engage in mere raids and casual encounters. It is indeed the peculiarity of a cavalry force quickly to win and as quickly to yield a victory. Fleetness and timidity go together. Deliberateness is more akin to steady courage. A practice, rare among the other German tribes and simply characteristic of individual prowess, has become general among the chatty of letting the hair and beard grow as soon as they have attained manhood, and not till they have slain a foe laying aside that peculiar aspect which devotes and pledges them to valour. Over the spoiled and bleeding enemy they show their faces once more, then, and not till then, proclaiming that they have discharged the obligations of their birth and prove themselves worthy of their country and of their parents. The coward and the unwarlike remain unshorn. The bravest of them also wear an iron ring, which otherwise is a mark of disgrace among the people, until they have released themselves by the slaughter of a foe. Most of the chatty delight in these fashions. Even hoary-headed men are distinguished by them, and are thus conspicuous alike to enemies and to fellow countrymen. To begin the battle always rests with them. They form the first line, an unusual spectacle. Nor, even in peace, do they assume a more civilized aspect. They have no home or land or occupation. They are supported by whomsoever they visit, as lavish of the property of others as they are regardless of their own, till at length the feebleness of age makes them unequal to so stern a valour. Recording by Julie von Mulligan. Next to the Cathy on the Rhine, which is now a well-defined channel and serves as a boundary, dwell the Usipi and Tanktory. The latter, besides the more usual military distinctions, particularly excel in the organization of cavalry, and the Cathy are not more famous for their foot soldiers than are the Tanktory for their horsemen. What their forefathers originated, posterity maintain. This applies sport to their children, rivalry to their youths. Even the aged keep it up. Horses are bequeathed, along with the slaves, the dwelling-house, and the usual right of inheritance. They go to the son, not to the eldest, as does in the other property, but to the most warlike and courageous. After the tanktory came in former days the broctory, but the general account now is that the camavi and angrivari entered their settlements, drove them out, and utterly exterminated them with the common help of the neighbouring tribes, 
either from hatred of their tyranny, or from the attractions of plunder, or from heaven's favourable regard for us. It did not even grudge us the spectacle of the conflict. More than sixty thousand fell, not beneath the Roman arms and weapons, but grander far, before our delighted eyes. May the tribes, I pray, ever retain, if not love for us, at least hatred for each other. For while the destinies of empire hurry us on, fortune can give no greater boon than discord among our foes. The Angrivari and Camavi abounded in the rear by the Dalgabini and Casuari, and other tribes not equally famous. Towards the river are the Frizi, distinguished as the greater and lesser Frizi, according to their strengths. Both these tribes, as far as the ocean, are skirted by the Rhine, and their territory also embraces vast lakes which Roman fleets have navigated. We have ventured on the ocean itself in these parts. Pillars of Hercules, so rumour commonly says, still exist, whether Hercules really visited the country, or whether we have agreed to ascribe every work of grandeur wherever met with to his renown. Drusus Germanicus, indeed, did not lack daring, but the ocean barred the explorer's access to itself and to Hercules. Subsequently, no one has made the attempt, and it has been thought more pious and reverential, to believe in the actions of the gods than to inquire. Thus far we have taken note of western Germany. Northwards the country takes a vast sweep. First comes the tribe of the Corsi, which, beginning at the Phrygian settlements and occupying a part of the coast, stretches along the frontier of all the tribes which I have enumerated, till it reaches with a bend as far as the Cati. This vast extent of country is not merely possessed, but densely peopled by the Corsi, the noblest of the German races, a nation who would maintain their greatness by righteous dealing. Without ambition, without lawless violence, they live peaceful and secluded, never provoking a war or injuring others by rapine and robbery. Indeed, the crowning proof of their valour and their strength is that they keep up their superiority without harm to others. Yet all have their weapons in readiness, and an army of necessary, with a multitude of men and horses, and even while at peace they have the same renown of valour. Dwelling on one side of the Corsi and Cati, the Karaski long cherished, unassailed, an excessive and enervating love of peace. This was more pleasant than safe, for to be a peaceful self-deception among lawless and powerful neighbours, where the strong hand decides, moderation and justice are terms applied only to the more powerful. And so the Karaski, ever reputed good and just, are now called cowards and fools while in the case of the victorious Cati success has been identified with prudence. The downfall of the Kerski brought with it also that of the Fossi, a neighbouring tribe, which shared equally in their disasters, though they had been inferior to them in prosperous days. In the same remote corner of Germany, bordering on the ocean, dwell the Cimbri, a now insignificant tribe, but of great renown. Of their ancient glory, Widespread traces yet remain. On both sides of the Rhine are encampments of vast extent, 
and by this circuit you may even now measure the warlike strength of the tribe, and find evidence of that mighty emigration. Rome was in her six hundred and fortieth year, when we first heard of the Cimbrian invader, in the consulship of Cecilius Metellus and Papirius Carbo, from which time to the second consulship of the Emperor Trajan, we have to reckon about two hundred and ten years. So long have we been in conquering Germany. In the space of this long epoch, many losses have been sustained on both sides. Neither Semnite nor Carthaginian, neither Spain nor Gaul, not even the Parthians, have given us more frequent warnings. German independence truly is fiercer than the despotism of Anarcissus. What else, indeed, can the East taunt us with but the slaughter of Cressus when it has itself lost Pacorus and been crushed under a Ventidius? But Germans, by rooting or making prisoners of Carbo, Cassius, Scorus, Aurelius, Servilius Capio, and Marcellus Manlius, deprived the Roman people of five consular armies, and they robbed even a Caesar of Ferris and his three legions. Not without loss to us were they discomfited by Marius in Italy, by the great Julius in Gaul, and by Drusus, Nero, and Germanicus on their own ground. Soon after, the mighty menaces of Caius Caesar were turned into a jest. Then came a lull, until on the occasion of our discords and the civil war, they stormed the winter camp of our legions, and even designed the conquest of Gaul. Again were they driven back, and in recent times we have celebrated triumphs rather than one conquest over them. I must now speak of the Suevi, who are not one nation as are the Catti and Tanctuary, for they occupy the greater part of Germany, and have hitherto been divided into separate tribes with names of their own, though they are called by the general designation of Suevi. A national peculiarity with them is to twist their hair back and fasten it in a knot. This distinguishes the Suevi from the other Germans, as it also does their own freeborn from their slaves. With other tribes, either from some connection with the Suevic race, or as often happens, from imitation, the practice is an occasional one and restricted to youth. The Suevi, till their heads are grey, affect the fashion of drawing back their uncamped locks, and often they are knotted on the very top of the head. The chiefs have a more elaborate style, so much do they study appearance, but in perfect innocence, not with any thought of love-making, but arranging their hair when they go to battle, to make themselves tall and terrible. They adorn themselves, so to speak, for the eyes of the foe. The Semnones give themselves out to be the most ancient and renowned branch of the Suevi. Their antiquity is strongly attested by the religion. At a stated period, all the tribes of the same race, assembled by their representatives in a grove consecrated by the auguries of their forefathers and by immemorial associations of terror. Here, having publicly slaughtered a human victim, they celebrate the horrible beginning of the barbarous rite. Reverence also in other ways is paid to the grove. No one enters it except bound with a chain, as an inferior acknowledging the might of the local divinity. 
If he chanced to fall, it is not lawful for him to be lifted up or to rise to his feet. He must crawl out along the ground. All the superstition implies the belief that from this spot the nation took its origin. Here dwells the supreme and all-ruling deity to whom all else is subject and obedient. The fortunate lot of the Simnoni strengthens this belief. A hundred cantons are in their occupation, and the vastness of their community makes them regard themselves as a head of this weather grace. To the Langobardi, on the contrary, their scanty numbers are a distinction. Though surrounded by a host of most powerful tribes, they are safe, not by submitting, but by daring the perils of war. Next come the Rodigni, the Aviones, the Angli, the Varini, the Eudoses, the Swadones, and Nuthones, who are fenced in by rivers or forests. None of these tribes have any noteworthy feature except their common worship of Ertha, or Mother Earth, and their belief that she interposes in human affairs and visits the nations in her car. In an island of the ocean there is a sacred grove, and within it a consecrated chariot covered over with a garment. Only one priest is permitted to touch it. He can perceive the presence of the goddess in the sacred recess, and walks by her side with the utmost reverence as she is drawn along by hyphers. It is a season of rejoicing, and festivity reigns wherever she deigns to go and be received. They do not go to battle or wear arms. Every weapon is under lock. Peace and quiet are known and welcomed only at these times, till the goddess, weary of human intercourse, is at length restored by the same priest to her temple. Afterwards, the car, the vestment, and, if you like to believe it, the divinity herself, are purified in a secret lake. Slaves perform the rite, who are instantly swallowed up by its waters. Hence arises a mysterious terror and a pious ignorance concerning the nature of that which is seen only by men doomed to die. This branch indeed of the Suevi stretches into the remoter regions of Germany. Nearer to us is a state of the Hermundry, I shall follow the course of the Danube as I did before that of the Rhine. A people loyal to Rome. Consequently, they, alone of the Germans, trade not merely on the banks of the river, but far inland, and in the most flourishing colony of the province of Risha. Everywhere they are allowed to pass without a guard, and while to the other tribes who display only our arms and our camps, to them we have thrown open our houses and country seats, which they do not covet. It is in their lands that the Albi takes its rise, a famous river known to us in past days. Now we only hear of it. The Nariski border on the Hermundri, and then follow the Marcomanni and Quarry. The Marcomanni stand first in strength and renown, and their very territory, from which the Boi were driven in a former age, was won by valour, nor are the Nariski and Quadi inferior to them. This I may call the frontier of Germany, so far as it is completed by the Danube. The Marcomanni and Quadi have, up to our time, been ruled by kings of their own nation. 
descended from the noble stock of Marabodius and Tudras. They now submit even to foreigners, but the strength and power of the monarch depend on Roman influence. He is occasionally supported by our arms, more frequently by our money, and his authority is none the less. Behind them, the Marsigni, Gotini, Osi, and Buri close in the rear of the Marcomanni and Quadi. Of these, the Marsigni and Buri, in their language and manner of life, resemble the Suevi. The Gotini and Osi are proved by their respective Gallic and Pannonian tongues, as well as by the fact of their enduring tribute, not to be Germans. Tribute is imposed on them as aliens, partly by the Samate, partly by the Quadi. The Gotini, to complete their degradation, actually work iron mines. All these nations occupy but little of the plain country, dwelling in forest and on mountain tops. For Suevia is divided and cut in half by a continuous mountain range, beyond which live a multitude of tribes. The name of Ligi, spread as it is among many states, is most widely extended. It will be enough to mention the most powerful, which are the Hari, the Helvicones, the Manimi, the Helici, and the Nehanavali. Among these last is shown a grove of immemorial sanctity. A priest in female attire has a charge of it, but the deities are described in Roman language as Castor and Pollux. Such indeed are the attributes of the divinity, the name being Alcis. They have no images, or indeed any vestige of foreign superstition, but it is as brothers and as youths that the deities are worshipped. The Hari, besides being superior in strength to the tribes just enumerated, savage as they are, make the most of their natural ferocity by the help of art and opportunity. Their shields are black, their bodies dyed. They choose dark nights for battle, and by the dread and gloomy aspect of their death-like host, strike terror into the foe, who can never confront their strange and almost infernal appearance. For in all battles it is the eye which is first vanquished. Beyond the Ligi are the Gatonis, who are ruled by kings a little more strictly than the other German tribes, but not as yet inconsistently with freedom. Immediately adjoining them, further from the coast, are the Rugi and Lemovi, the patch of all these tribes being the round shield, the short sword, and servile submission to their kings. And now begin the state of the Suonis, situated on the ocean itself, and these, beside men and arms, are powerful in ships. The form of their vessels is peculiar in this respect, that a prow at either extremity acts as a forepart, always ready for running into shore. They are not worked by sails, nor have they rough oars attached to their sides, but, as on some rivers, the apparatus of rowing is unfixed, and shifted from side to side as circumstances require. And they likewise honour wealth, and so a single ruler holds sway with no restrictions, and with no uncertain claim to obedience. Arms are not with them, as with the other Germans, at the general disposal, but are in the charge of a keeper, who is actually a slave, for the ocean forbids the sudden inroad of enemies, and besides, an idle multitude of armed men is easily demoralised. And indeed, 
It is by no means the policy of a monarch to place either a nobleman, a free-born citizen, or even a freedman, at the head of an armed force. Beyond the Suiones is another sea, sluggish and almost motionless, which we may certainly infer, girdles and surrounds the world, from the fact that the last radiance of the setting sun lingers on till sunrise, with a brightness sufficient to dim the light of the stars. Even the very sound of his rising, as popular belief adds, may be heard, and the forms of gods and the glory round his head may be seen. Only thus far, and here rumour seems truth, does the world extend. At this point, the Swavic Sea, on its eastern shore, washes the tribes of the Asti, whose rites and fashions and style of dress are those of the Swavi, while their language is more like the British. They worship the mother of the gods, and wear as a religious symbol the device of a wild boar. This serves as armour, and as a universal defence, rendering the votary of the goddess safe even amidst enemies. They often use clubs, iron weapons, but seldom. They are more patient in cultivating corn and other produce than might be expected from the general indolence of the Germans. They also search the deep, and are the only people who gather amber, which they call glesum, in the shadows, and also on the shore itself. Barbarians as they are, they have not investigated, or discovered what natural cause or process produces it. Nay, it even lay amidst the sea's other refuse, till our luxury gave it a name. To them it is utterly useless. They gather it in its raw state, bring it to us in shapeless lumps, and marvel at the price which they receive. It is, however, a juice from trees, as you may infer from the fact, that there are often seen shining through it reptiles, and even winged insects, which, having become entangled in the fluid, are gradually enclosed in the substance as it hardens. I am therefore inclined to think that the islands and countries of the west, like the remote recesses of the east, where frankincense and balsam exude, contain fruitful woods and groves, that these productions, acted on by the near rays of the sun, glide in a liquid state into the adjacent sea, and are thrown up by the force of storms on the opposite shores. If you test the composition of amber by applying fire, it burns like pinewood, and sends forth a rich and fragrant flame. It is soon softened into something like pitch or raisin. Closely bordering on the Sionis are the tribes of the Sitonis, which, resembling them in all else, differ only in being ruled by woman. So low have they fallen, not merely from freedom, but even from slavery itself. Here Suevia ends. As to the tribes of the Pocini, Finati, and Feni, I am in doubt whether I should class them with the Germans or the Samate, although indeed the Pocini, called by some Bastonet, are like Germans in their language, mode of life, and in the permanence of their settlements. They all live in filth and sloth, and by the intermarriages of the chiefs, they are becoming in some degree debased into resemblance to the Samate. The Veneti have borrowed largely from the Samartian character, and their plundering expeditions, they roam over the whole extent of forest and mountain between the Pogini and Feni. 
They are, however, to be rather referred to the German race, for they have fixed habitations, carry shields, and delight in strength and fleetness of foot, thus presenting a complete contrast to the Samate, who live in wagons and on horseback. The Fanny are strangely beast-like and squalidly poor. Neither arms nor horses have they. Their food is herbs, their clothing skins, their bed the earth. They trust wholly to their arrows, which, for want of iron, are pointed with bone. The men and women are alike supplied by the chase, for the latter are always present, and demand a share of the prey. The little children have no shelter from wild beasts and storms, but a covering of interlaced boughs. Such are the homes of the young, such the resting place of the old. If they count this greater happiness than groaning over field labour, toiling at building, and poising the fortunes of themselves and others between hope and fear. Heedless of men, heedless of gods, they have attained the hardest of results, the not needing so much as wish. All else is fabulous, as at a Halusi and Exiones have the faces and expressions of men with the bodies and limbs of wild beasts. All this is unauthenticated, and I shall leave it open.'